Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode two of How's That Day, Tom and Phil's new podcast. It's only our fourth or fifth try at one, but we're getting it done. This is episode two. We're even further into making this a real thing. How are you, Tom? How is that day? This day is good, Phil. It is... Thursday, March 29th. Today is opening day in baseball, so I didn't get a chance to watch the Red Sox, but they were dominating. Our ace, Chris Sale, was a stud through six innings, only gave up one hit, and then they blew a four-run lead in the eighth and lost, so that was a bummer. But um, even though I used to be a huge baseball fan in high school, like I used to watch every single inning, I just don't have the time for it anymore, but opening day is still really exciting. I, it's, it feels like a, a holiday of sorts, so I'm very happy that that is here. It's uh, like mid-70s in L.A. It was a beautiful sunny day out today. Um, got some good work news, so I'm happy. I'm, I'm, today's been a good day, Phil. How's your day? My day is going very, very, uh, very busy, but good. It's been a good day. Um, I saw I saw some movies that we're going to talk about uh, a little bit later. I, oh yeah. Um, I watched the documentary right before we started that I'm going to mention later. You know, Ooh. so you know, yeah. Um, it's going pretty good. I my work is also pretty good right now. So, you know, not much not much to report this week in terms of anything new or exciting. But it's been, you know, no bad news, which I guess is good news. How's the weather in Ohio? It is rainy and really crappy. Uh, so the, not the sunny thing that you're talking about out in California, but we do have plenty of rain, which you do not have any of. So I guess there's that going for Ohio right now. We don't have a drought. We did have, we did have rain pretty recently, actually. Once I'm talking about like multiple days. <laughs> yeah. We had like a, a, we had like a solid week of raining off and on. Yeah. Like once a year. Yeah. Basically it always happens around this time. Like right when spring Right when winter turns to spring on the calendar, L.A. seems to get some rain spells for like two weeks. And everyone's like, oh, it's finally green. The drought is over. This is amazing. And then in December, everything lights on fire again. And it's apocalyptic, but whatever. It does always rain opening day of baseball now that you mention it. I feel like at least at many places around the country. I think your uh, team, the Reds, I think their game was postponed today. There were a couple for sure that were rained out. Yeah, Washington yeah, yeah. at Cincinnati was postponed. Yeah, it's it's a constant problem. But thankfully, they're only going to have like 300 more chances to play the game. So they're fine. Yeah, it's only going to be another uh, five to 600 hours of baseball you can watch this year. So get them in now while you can, everybody. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, or you could just go watch basketball and have that take up the rest of your year as well. Oh, man, I, I could. We should talk a little sports. Phil is not nearly the sports fanatic that I am. Um, especially with basketball, although you like sports, you watch your Bengals, as you like to call them, in the NFL. Yeah, I I like sports. I'm a fan of sports, but my life has not been cooperative in terms of finding time for sports the last couple of years. So I haven't had as much time to like actually watch many games from people for various reasons. But I do like sports. I'm just not the uh, the numbers nerd, or I can't like name all the players on every team type like like I used to be able to or anything like that. So you're definitely way ahead of me in the sports game there's things i could say right now that i'm not gonna say phil and you know what they are i do know what they are but (laughs) (laughs) but i'm not gonna say i'm phil that's another i like we can do a whole (laughs) podcast about that later on because oh that would be a great if you guys want to hear us argue and get into a heated discussion 
we will talk about the NBA at a later episode. But what I was going to say is, speaking of watching basketball, which I do, I watch every Celtics game, even when I get spoiled, unless it was like a devastating loss or something, I'll delete it if I somehow got the game spoiled. But, you know, out in L.A., most of the Celtics games are on at 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, so I usually record them and watch them later. And they just had an amazing road trip. So they've lost, like, there were three best players didn't play last night. They Kyrie Irving's out until the playoffs. Al Horford was out. Gordon Hayward's been out all season. They beat the Jazz on the road. Second year Jalen Brown hit a game-winning three with .1 seconds left. They just went 4-0 on a Western Conference road trip against four playoff teams without basically half their roster. I'm very happy right now as a Celtics fan. Yeah, it's a hell of a start. <laughs> Not a start. The season's almost over, but, you know, it was a, it was a good run. Mm, okay. I obviously don't know much. <laughs> you try. You try, and that's why I love like, you. Ah, okay, okay, sure, sure. Sports, sports. Um, so let's switch over to something I'm a bit more comfortable talking at length about. Um, yeah. You and I went to go see some movies this week. Um, we did. Not together, yeah. unfortunately, because we're 2,000 miles apart, but we did. Yeah, we're, we are not together, but we were together in spirit. And uh, <sighs> I wish we le- were together, Phil. That would be so great. We are going to be. I'll be out there very soon, sir. Before you know it, I'll be there. And... No, I meant romantically, like you leave your fiancé and come oh. live with me. Oh. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well. Uh, Just think about it. Yeah, I mean, you do have a pool. so I do have a pool that I, I hope the sound isn't too awful listeners there's a construction going outside i was just explaining off mic before we started to fill the this building i live in it's like a huge complex with eight buildings in la an apartment complex and every year they repaint the entire thing and right now they're doing all black and dark blue it looks like once it finishes we're all gonna sacrifice a baby in the middle of the hot tub or something it's crazy are you but yeah if if you i will i'm down if they want to do it i mean if it's sanctioned by the by the leasing agents that's great but yeah so if you hear some buzzing i apologize yeah or like a baby being murdered it's one of those two well, things i will i will not apologize for that you as you shouldn't all right so exactly. i saw i saw some segues in there you mentioned gay love so we could talk about love simon a little bit there let's do it well i didn't see that one but if you want to talk about that one, we can start there all right well all right so let's let's review we're going to talk about three movies right now um we i saw love simon you saw Pacific Rim Uprising, and we both saw Steven Soderbergh's new iPhone thriller, Unsane. Fake young Good morning, Creekwood Hark! My name's Simon. For the most part, my life is totally normal. I have a family that I actually like, and there's my friends. We do everything friends do. We drink way too much diced coffee, we walk gorging on carbs. So, I'm just like you, except I have one huge-ass secret. Hey! I like your your boots. I said I like your your boots. Goodbye. Nobody knows I'm gay. We'll start with uh, Love Simon. It is making waves because it is the first. Uh, it's not the first gay film, but it's the first studio finance studio major studio released uh, film about a gay teenager, an open or not an openly gay teenager. I shouldn't say that, but um, a protagonist who is uh, uh, a gay homosexual teenager. Uh, struggling with his identity and sexuality. And the film uh, is kind of like a YA version of that story. It's not exactly like a Gus Van Sant, like hard-hitting, like the brutal life of a gay teenager type movie. It's very much in that like teen uh, teen dramedy type thing where, you know, it's 
brightly lit and everyone's wearing, you know, like designer clothes and it's very like, you know, drinking cappuccinos. It's very much in that world. It's not like a gritty indie. So uh, it's making some small waves. And I went to go see that this weekend with my fiance and my daughter. And they were both pretty excited to see it, more so than I was. I have to admit that walking in, I was um, not super excited, not because of anything like uh, political or homosexual about it. It was just more, I think, the YA-ness of it probably is what was throwing me off. I was like, I don't know if I want to go see this like watered-down version of a very serious problem that you know young people have so I, I i wasn't giving it much credence but i went to go see it with them and I, I have to admit i was pleasantly surprised it is definitely a pg-13 ya version of this story but it's well done and it does several things i think in the specifics very very right and is very warm-hearted and very true and it was a better watch than i thought it was going to be and I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, to me, I, I did not see it, like I said, but based off the trailer, it gave me kind of a, a Nicholas Sparks type of movie vibe a little bit, maybe, you know? Um, like, maybe not at that level of recycled material, obviously. It, it has an interesting spin on it, but it didn't look funny or biting, really, like The Edge of Seventeen, and it didn't... Yeah, it didn't seem like a movie for... An, an adult drama, basically. So I'm glad you liked it. I know the reviews are actually good, which surprised me when I saw it come out. And so, I mean, I'm looking the IMDb, IMDb page right now. It has a 73 Metacritic, which is quite good for a movie like this. Yeah, well, I think that even though, like I said, it does feel very safe in a lot of ways, and it's not exactly um, doing anything dramatically that you probably haven't seen done in a more artistic or dramatic way in other past films from more quote-unquote serious films. But I think what this one's doing, and the reason it's... I think this one is kind of quietly revolutionary because even when it's not good at being something or if it's just kind of casual about something, the fact that it can be casual about that is what's revolutionary. So to give an example, the fact that there is a movie about a gay teen struggling with coming out to his friends and family and no one seems to care about that. And I don't mean that in a, like it's the movie's doing poorly. I mean to say like, there's no big media story surrounding that. It's not like, like I remember when Brokeback Mountain came out, like people were just shocked and like that Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger would, you know, be kissing each other or dealing with that kind of material and now we kind of look at a film like this, and it's not a big deal at all. And it, the fact that it's just out in theaters and that you can go see it and no one really is making a big, you know, fuss over the thing, it's it's kind of nice and wonderfully revolutionary in its own way. And just for the film existing, I think, is a great, positive, progressive step. So uh, even that feeling from the film was nice to kind of leave the theater with. Yeah, I agree. I think that's great. I think it's cool that we're at that level of acceptance in our culture where this can just be a thing that exists you know it's not not being met with protests from like the Westboro Baptist Church or it doesn't have Siskel and Ebert reading off the members involved with the creation of the movie and shouting shame at their cameras like they did with Silent Night Deadly Night or anything well, one thing that is interesting I've been listening to some conversations around the movie um, that I have I, I, that I would not think of. I'm a straight white male, so I don't... I, I try to go into these things with an open mind trying to hopefully learn something. 
And I walked out of the theater and conversations I was hearing and then reviews that I read later kind of pointed out that this is a very safe uh, gay film. In many ways, it's about a, um, a, a, a male, a white male of privilege. And um, they're saying that he he's kind of, I don't want to, that no one, I don't think I've seen this actual quote, but I've basically inferring that he's not gay enough, that he's not feminine enough. And there's been some backlash from like, from some corners of the gay community who are, who feel like they're not, they're still not being represented. They're still kind of giving this safe version of a gay man that is broadly appealing and not actually uh, how they view their own gay identity. And I thought that was interesting. I, you know, I can't really, I don't want to say that they're wrong um, or anything, but cause you know, there's obviously multiple different types of gay people out there, but it was interesting that, even though this film is considered hugely progressive in some wings, that there are still ways that people are seeing, like, you know, we can go further and, and I, you know, and that's all, you know, for me worth thinking about, but there are different, there are multiple gay characters in the film that represent different types of queerness. And it was, you know, an interesting conversation worth having, but there's, there's also this part of me that's kind of like, well, this is, you know, the film existing right now is enough. This film couldn't have existed this way 10 years ago. So, you know, maybe in 10 years we'll get it a little bit further. Also, I feel like a lot of these, I don't know. There are so many hypercritical people online. And I feel like if the filmmakers had made him more effeminate or whatever, there would be people complaining that he was too much of a gay stereotype or something. You know, like you're just, you're not going to please everybody. We were born into a world at war. Between the monsters that destroyed our cities and the monsters we created to stop them, we thought we had sacrificed enough. But the war we thought we finished is just beginning. And the only thing standing in front of the apocalypse is us. And speaking of not pleasing everyone, do you want to talk about uh, Pacific Rim Uprising? Yeah, I can't speak for the people who weren't pleased, but I gotta say I was. It's, uh, Were you? I, I mean, it's I a just, dumb. I... It, yes, it's a dumb movie. I will say that off the bat. It is dumb. I know it is dumb. Um, but I see a lot of dumb movies, and I enjoy a lot of dumb movies, um, especially the big blockbusters. I this reminded me the most of Independence Day Resurgence, which, which I was, also refuse to see. Yeah, it was universally trashed. Um, and I don't blame people for trashing it, but it's also like, I don't know, Phil knows this. I grade all movies on a curve. Like, a movie like Unsane or The Death of Stalin, I'm going to grade much more seriously and critically than a movie like Pacific Rim 2 because their goals are completely different as movies, you know? Like, not every movie is created equal, I guess is my point. And I go to something like Pacific Rim 2 wanting to see giant robots fighting giant kaiju monsters. And I, that's what it provided. It gave me that. Like, obviously, when they're... When a big blockbuster... when Or just a movie in general kind of transcends its genre and what it's trying to do, then you see something special. But you're not going to get that every time. That's just impossible, you know? There aren't that many genius creatives in the world to do that properly. So my expectations were low. Um... John Boyega's in it, and he's genuinely trying. 
<laughs> he he's uh basically he plays Idris Elba's son, who was you know the we are canceling the apocalypse guy from the first movie, which they they have <laughs> of kind course, of a meta of moment where where they make fun of that speech in the sequel, which I liked. Like Charlie Day, I think is the only return or no him and the other uh, doctor who I, I forget his name, the other scientist, but they're the only two like main recurring characters, and Charlie Day. I think it was him, makes a joke to John Boyega about his dad. He's like, yeah, he was such a hero. He died a hero. And he was a really good speechwriter, too. Don't you remember that whole canceling the apocalypse thing? That was great. Like, just kind of mocking their own uh, origins, which I enjoyed. But it's very similar. Not only that, uh, so Boyega is the son of the hero of the first movie, much like in Independence Day 2. Will Smith's son is one of the leads of Independence Day Resurgence. And it's basically very similar setup. The first half is a lot of exposition getting to where you need to get and the second half is just pure non-stop action and that's kind of the whole movie i'll spoil a little bit uh one thing that i was not expecting you saw pacific rim right yeah so for those who remember pacific rim if you remember charlie day's character at all he's this um scientist who gets involved in trying to figure out the inner workings of the kaiju right and he um he basically like gets hooked up to their to their brain to to like a kaiju monster synapses, and in this movie he turns out to be the villain, like he's just straight up the bad guy. Um, oh, it's kind of re- revealed halfway through, but he's basically been mind fucked by this kaiju brain that he is keeping in his apartment, in his bedroom, and treating it like it's his wife. That is true. That happens in this movie. Jesus. Yeah, um, so it's kind of it's kind of funny to see him as a bad guy. Um, I honestly couldn't even tell you like the characters' names or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I had a good time. If you want to go see, if you're like me and you like going to dumb movies and just really enjoying the spectacle and like seeing all that money on the screen, if you're especially if you're a fan of you know old Godzilla movies, which I love, I mean. Pacific Rim Two is not great, but you're gonna you're gonna have a decent time, I think. Just don't overanalyze it. Like these movies are not supposed to be thought about critically, in my opinion. Um, here's all right. So here's some of my things that I got from it. Um, one thing I did like about the trailer, because one thing I do find very very annoying in this uh, age of special effects action is how much so much of it takes place at night and in the rain. And I think that was actually yeah. a, one of the problems with the first one is there was several big moments that were all at night and. Obviously, they're doing it to disguise some shoddy effects and kind of, you know, get things in there and not have to... You, you can get away with the details being a little bit fuzzier at nighttime. But I did notice from the trailers that it seemed like at least a huge chunk of the action in the movie was taking place in the daytime. Yeah, almost all of it. Well, that's awesome. I think that's really cool. I, um, I, I'm not against seeing Pacific Rim Uprising. It's just I didn't have time this current week to go see that with the other ones. And uh, for me... I I wasn't nearly as taken aback by this one as I was something like Independence Day 2, because I look at Independence Day, and I grew up with that one, and that one seems like such an isolated movie with a clear beginning, middle, and end, that it's like the only thing you can possibly do is, oh, the aliens come back. And um, and I just like didn't feel like that movie had any reason for existing other than that we they had the name Independence Day and they wanted to do something with it. Um, whereas this one... Ev- even though I would say this one obviously feels like um, the um, 
the monsters are coming back and they're still fighting the monsters, I at least feel like it's set up in a world that the first movie seems more franchise built to me. So I guess like, oh, this is going to be a series of monsters versus machine movies, which is cool by me. Um, I guess I just, um, without someone like Guillermo del Toro kind of pulling me in, aesthetically it's hard for me to get excited because it's it kind of blends in with the transformer movies and i it, you know so i don't get as excited especially by the sequel but i am interested to watch it i gotta say though the plot is exactly the same and i think the difference between independence day and pacific rim i mean one of several but a, a major difference in my mind is they're both the product of their times i think if pacific rim had been made in the 90s you would maybe think of it as not a franchise setup because the first Pacific Rim ends with humans saving the day. They close the the crack, like the Lovecraftian crack in the bottom of the ocean that allows these monsters into our world. The Pacific Rim. Yeah, it, it has its own conclusion. And a lot of this movie is basically like you, you're introduced to this adolescent girl who becomes one of the main characters along with John Boyega who has basically created her own um, whatever the fuck they call the, the robots, they have a name for them, I'm, I'm blanking now, but because she's anticipating, like, oh, they're going to come back eventually, so they're, like, trying to set you up for the idea of, like, yeah, we kind of finished the story in the first one, but, you know, we're here again, so something's got to happen, and then they kind of tweak it in a, li- in a little bit, uh, they tweak it a little bit in a way that makes it so it's not just straight up yeah, this is happening again. You know, they try to weave it into the story, especially with Charlie Day's story as the villain. But, yeah, I, th- I don't know. I think I think we've just come to accept... Like, they try to make King Arthur into a movie franchise, you know? Like, every big-budget movie now, they're just trying to work into the movie inherently a way to set it up for future installments. Like, even this ends with a setup for a potential third movie, you know? That, that was my next question. I said, does this one end with a setup for part three? But, yeah. Um, yeah, totally. Um, th- it's funny too because Pacific Rim did not make money domestically. I think it basically made its budget back, but it was a huge hit internationally. And this movie, obviously, a lot of it takes place in China. <laughs> like they just they straight up know this is an international film. They it cost one hundred and fifty million. I think it made like twenty seven in its opening weekend in the U.S. And that was above the estimate from the studio that was more than they thought it was going to make right now currently uh right now currently pacific rim is sitting at 34.7 million domestically and 122.4 million foreign so it's made a about uh, 157 total on 150 million dollar budget so right now it's it's not doing that yes. great no but i you figure it'll make at least 300 worldwide when it's done it still has a bunch of territories to open up in and that'll, I mean, it'll probably turn a profit once it hits like 240 or 250, I would think. Well, and the other thing about, pro- yeah, the other thing about properties like that too is those are the people who are marketing that are making just as much money on those toys that they're selling, you know, or, you know, that's oh, yeah. a, a very marketable kind of series where you can have toys and action figures and dolls and any, you know, you can have monsters and robots and it's very, you know, action figure based and they're going to make a lot of money recouping that way as opposed to necessarily the uh the box office plus i'm sure you know they sold a bunch of money and got rebates and stuff from foreign distribution i'm sure they're doing just fine yeah so congratulations to two-time oscar winner guillermo del toro 
who I assume is an executive producer of Pacific Rim 2. Well, you know what's weird, man? Like, he has not been pushing that movie at all. I really am curious if he, like, what, not that he was against it, but if he just didn't like it or something, because you would think, like, he's a producer on it, he's on Twitter all the time, you'd think he'd be like, hey, guys, Pacific Rim 2's coming out, but, like, I follow him, man. He didn't say, like, really peep about that movie, so I'm very curious what his relationship is to it at this point. Yeah, he just talks about troll hunters, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, Netflix kids show. Uh, Speaking of Del Toro, he was actually listed as a producer. I'm sure he wasn't on set, you know, or like very creatively involved. Maybe it was just a deal in his contract for making the first one. But on the front page of his IMDb, I just, uh, this just made me laugh. You know, they have the trivia page for everybody. And the one that they highlight is became a vegetarian after seeing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but only for four years. Currently, he's no longer a vegetarian. Why? I, I don't know what. Uh, the, the, I mean, I guess there's some meat eating in in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but in the, at the, is there meat eating at the dinner scene? I mean, it's implied. Do they? You know, there's a lot of yeah, yeah. human human stuffs strewn about. But maybe maybe it was just like the horrific nature of the way they died made him think of slaughterhouses or something. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe uh, he's lying to just like overstate the impact of the movie it had that the movie had on him. Yeah, I like those people that say Oakjaw made them a vegetarian. Yeah, my uh, two cousins who live in Amsterdam are huge uh, vegan, vegetarian, animal rights activists. And when I was there last summer to visit my brother, who was in school in Spain at the time, I remember Oakjaw just come out. And I remember asking if they had seen it. And one of them like, fought back tears just talking about it. Just from me asking, have you watched Oakjaw yet? She was like, yes. <laughs> Like, oh, you poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. I mean, like, I, you know, my fiance is a vegan, so I can't make too much fun of them, but I will because. Oh, my girl, I'm not my making fi- fun. I thought it was sweet. I was just, it, it was touching, actually. I'm not mocking Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I could love something that much. Yeah, I'm incapable. Yeah. Um. All right. So, as, that's, as you mentioned, your fiance and seeing a movie with your daughter, and you say, I wish I could love something that much. <laughs> slips away from you you know changing your phone number and your email becomes normal taking out a restraining order normal relocating to another city normal but you still see your stalker everywhere rationally i know this is my imagination but i'm alone in a strange city and i never feel safe so i saw this a few days ago phil you just watched it today I told you not to tell me your thoughts. So you tell me, what did you think of Soderbergh's iPhone film thriller horror thing? All right. So for those of you who don't know, the plot is uh, the movie stars Claire Foy of The Crown fame, which I have not watched. Um, And she plays a lawyer, banker. She's some some kind of business person who is uh, having some personal struggles and she goes to talk to a psychiatrist at a psych hospital. And as she's staying there, they uh, tell her she's not allowed to leave. And the rest of the movie uh, follows her time in that hospital and her attempt to get out and her dealing with why she's there. And it's all kind of this psychological thriller. And so, and the whole thing was shot on an iPhone. Uh, Soderbergh for, you know, people who don't follow his career, he's probably the main reason I wanted to see this film. Uh, the story itself is fine. Like, I'm not, 
you know, against the story. But really, when I was watching the trailer, I said, oh, like, this will be a new formal exercise for Soderbergh because he is, you know, always trying something new. And the script is not always necessarily the most interesting part of whatever movie he's making. It oftentimes seems like he just chose that script to go do a thing that he's interested doing technically. And that was kind of my feelings going in. I was like, oh, I'm not going to really like the script probably all that much, or I think the script will probably be okay, but hopefully what Soderbergh's up to is interesting. And that's kind of how I walked out. Um, I think I liked the script a little bit more. Uh, actually, no. I would say I, I didn't like the script. <laughs> um, I, I'm still very mixed on the movie overall. Um, I think a lot of what he was doing or trying for is very interesting, but I don't think in execution that it really works. And I also think there is a massive, massive, massive plot hole um, that bothered me the in, almost the entire running time of the film. Um, once a certain person is revealed to be there in the yeah. hospital, um, we, let's just do, let, let's just talk spoilers. You want to do spoilers? Okay. Um, so yeah. Spoilers. I mean, well, pretty much any movie we talk about, unless we say it ahead of time. Just assume that we're gonna maybe not just like we're not gonna spoil a Sixth Sense esque twist ending in movies, but we're gonna talk about them freely and openly. So if you don't like to get movies spoiled beforehand, maybe skip. But yeah, it's hard because a lot of what you were just saying, not only do I agree with, but I have some major problems with where the story goes. Yeah. Okay. And so I think we agree. All right. So spoilers ahead for Unsane. Um, <laughs> I will say that going in, I was very worried and hoped that the film wasn't going to be is she crazy or isn't she crazy i was really hoping like i hope that's not the crux of the film i hope that like the end isn't like revealing oh it was all in her head or something like that because that's just annoying and it's been done and you know like i've seen shock corridor i don't need that movie again and so are you dissing shock corridor no i'm just saying that movie's been done before like uh yeah Yeah, because that movie's awesome that's a great movie yeah, no, Shock Corridor is great. Um, that's I just didn't want that movie again. And yeah. so, basically, uh, she is in the hospital, and you find out early in the film that she has moved uh, to Pennsylvania, I believe, from Boston because she had a stalker. So she has changed her name and her identity, and uh, she is now in this new place. And so she checks into the hospital, and early in the movie it's implied that she is seeing her stalker who she had some kind of horrifying experience with death threats and such. And she's kind of seeing his face on other men. And so you're kind of led to like wonder like, Oh, is this person her ex or is it not? And, um, obviously if you're someone like me, who's cynical, you don't care about that. Um, but I was watching the movie and suddenly you find out that the guy who's giving her pills in the movie, who she has been saying is her ex. And I think you're supposed to believe like she's crazy for a little while. That's obviously not the real guy. Um, but then it's revealed that he is in fact her stalker and kind of at that point I was, I, I started to instantly kind of go like, well, how do he get a job there? Yes. You know, like, exactly. so, okay. So we need, okay. <laughs> he, she sees, she b- believes she sees him at work, which she doesn't, she hallucinates that. And then she goes on a one night stand and she's hooking up with a guy in her apartment and sees his flash, face flash for a second and freaks out the next day, I believe she Googles, I think it's PTSD for stalking or like treatment centers or group discussion therapy, whatever, some type of therapy for victims of stalking. She goes, has this meeting with a woman, signs some paperwork. Next thing she knows, she's locked up for 24 hours overnight. 
she sees his face again on a guy that it's quickly revealed is not the stalker, it's a different worker, punches him, and is stuck there now for an additional seven days. By that time, this guy gets a job? Doling out pills? What? What? Yeah, not only, like, is he... So, you have to... It's almost implied that he's already been working there. So, you'd have to accept that he somehow, like, knew that she was going to voluntarily go to this place and involuntarily be held against her will. And, you know, like, it just... It's not. It doesn't make any sense that he would be there. No, you'd that's have to such believe... a huge leap to take. Yeah, and not only that, but, like, yes, he'd have to have that job recently, uh, but he'd also, like, they're giving him the keys to the entire place. You know, he, he runs the joint. He's allowed to, like, do whatever he want, wants, and he's, like, you know, murdering bodies and covering up crimes. And it's just, like, there are ideas in the movie that we can talk about here in a few minutes but that are interesting and that I did kind of grab onto, but the basic elements of the of the plot like that were just so unbelievable and some of the ways that she was treated by the staff were so unbelievable and I understand that there's obviously that element of it's a movie it's a thriller um but sometimes you know if if I'm constantly being taken out of scenes then it's just not working for me regardless of the genre and yes um I just scenes just didn't feel realistic like even I I would have liked I know that they're trying to play up the mystery of like is this what's really happening here. But like even scenes like when she's first being checked in and they're being very forceful with her and you're like, I'm kind of like, this is not how this would go down. Like, and it, like it just kind of kept taking me out of the movie. Um, that said, I, and I was really worried about like 20 or 30 minutes into it. I was like, man, I'm really, really, really not liking this. I hope that there's something more to the movie. And then she gets a hold of her mom and her mom gets involved. And kind of once, once that happened, I, I, got a little bit more involved because I really did like how the movie starts in some ways to be about the horrors of bureaucracy. Like her mother, you know, goes in there and like, well, she signed this form and like, you know, she has to call this thing and the lawyer is like, well, this is just an insurance thing. You just have to wait three days. And you know, like you have to wait this certain period of time for this thing to clear and, Oh, they're waiting for insurance money. And like, it's almost like I enjoyed, I, I started to really enjoy the idea that this was a film about, an innocent person who's losing their entire life because of the horrors of the mundanity of like how businesses are run or like how poor hospitals are run that like this person's life could be ruined. And not only like, could it be not on purpose, but it could just be solely because she just got lost in this like really fucked up system. And I thought that was really interesting. And that's not really what the movie was. Um, It seemed like there was like little hints of that, but it didn't eventually go there. The third act really just, I don't I don't quite know what to make of the third act, you know, at this point when she's locked in the room in the padded room. Like I thought those scenes were okay, but at the same time I'm like what is this hospital where this guy can just shut off cameras and, you know, like lock people in basements for days on end and like it just didn't make any sense to me and there was a lot of gaps in logic like that that constantly yeah. were tearing me out of it. I was willing to take some leaps with things like that. I mean, so yeah, they, they're constantly threat, threatening to send her down to the basement, which basically they make out to be solitary confinement. And there are a lot of allusions um, in the script to the idea that this is kind of like a prison. Like when she's first locked up and sent uh, in the common area or whatever, and she's complaining to the nurse who gives her a physical examination and everything, 
she mentions that she wants to call somebody and the nurse says, you get a phone call, you know, which is like the classic movie line when someone's been locked up, you know, you get your one phone call. And I totally agree with you, Phil. I thought the most interesting thing about this movie by far was kind of the horrors of privatized healthcare and just the, the obvious indictment of this as a scam. This is just a scam for this hospital to make money off of people. And they don't care about her illness. They don't care if she's genuinely seeing people or not. Um, if she has a genuine trauma that needs to be worked out, they're just going to drug her for seven days, keep her sedated, collect the money from her insurance, and then move on. And that's that's their stated purpose. They do not give a shit about her. So the way they're being mean to her, I actually didn't mind in the beginning because I thought it was maybe just, you know, like an an overly dramatic reading of that type of situation, you know, to like almost just like, kind of... Yeah, almost like a satire of that type of environment. Yeah, which I thought was cool. But then you get, I mean... So by the time she is in line to get her pills for the first time and thinks she sees her stalker, who it turns out is her stalker, we're maybe halfway through the movie. And like 15 minutes later, we are given certainty that it is him, right? And then we have an entire third act where we know that she is seeing him for real, that it is really him. When her mom comes to town, he goes to her hotel room. Um, there are all this... All these things that happen, and they're still... The hospital doesn't give a shit. They're not... They claim they did a background check. Who even knows if that's true? Um, but yeah, then he kidnaps her. The hospital believes she has just been released. He turns the camera off down in the solitary confinement padded room. And she's there for how long in in real time do you think she's like, down there for? A, di- a day? A day and a two, half. Maybe two days, yeah. Something two or three, three days max, maybe. I don't know. Two days. I mean, they never, like, no one else, how big, that building didn't look very big, you know? Like, what? Yeah. What is going on? How is, what? That it just, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it just does not make sense. The whole ending of that movie does not make sense. Yeah, and if they had played it up, like, how understaffed they are, you know, like, I guess there is that one scene where the the woman's talking to the stalker, saying, like, how how they need all the help they can get right now. But, that, I don't know, that wasn't enough for me to believe that this is, like, the worst staffed mental hospital in all of America. But wouldn't, and, but wouldn't there also just be someone who would occasionally have to keep their eyes on the cameras, like, and notice, yeah. hey, these ones are black. Why is that? Yeah, hey, this camera's been out for two days now um we might want to go walk by that room and check it out yeah this guy is here day and night and he keeps sneaking off downstairs maybe something's going on it's just silly it just turns into i don't know man i love horror movies this movie isn't really scary at all so i don't even i mean i guess i would qualify it as horror because it is a psychological horror film but yeah I, i actually i liked the first part of it a lot. I liked the setup of her getting down there, uh, ending up in the hospital. I liked, yeah, all the shit about it being like the Jay Farrow character who at first I thought was kind of miscast. I ended up really liking him. He's this guy who's kind of like, you know, the guy who knows how these places work and he's able to keep a cell phone hidden from the staff and make outside calls and hook people up with cigarettes or whatever, if that's what they want. And he's the one who kind of knows, like, look, this is just a business for them. They don't give a shit about you. All that stuff I thought was interesting. But it's such a it's such a huge plot hole that this 
that the stock would actually be working there. It's just such a major, major misfire that it's really hard to recover. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we've talked a lot about the story. And like I said, I kind of went in assuming that the story was going to be my least favorite aspect of it. So I do want to talk about some of the stuff that Soderbergh was up to yeah. visually. And uh, so what did you think of the iPhone? Because it's used very differently here than it is in something like Tangerine. Didn't like it. Not a fan. At all? At all? Like for any particular not, reason? Not really. Um, I mean, when it, when it worked best, were in some shots where it just kind of reminded me of a a regular digital film, and then yeah. there are other times where it looked really flat. Um, there were a lot of like weird camera angle close ups that just kind of show the just the struggle that a a camera system like that would have with depth of field and things that just didn't work. Like I I, I know. In terms of composition, he was going for a lot of, like, there were a lot of really extreme close-ups with wide lenses, you know? Yeah, it's it's very unflattering. To try to give it, like, an off-kilter effect, which, yeah, A, is just un- kind of ugly to look at, and B, it just didn't really work. It just looked cheap to me. Like, I was watching it in a theater and just kind of felt like, ugh, this could be, I should have watched this at home, maybe. Well, like... I was of several different minds about it. It kind of went scene by scene. Some scenes I thought it looked kind of cool. Uh, other scenes, like especially the the blue for night stuff, I thought was really ugly. Um, so ugly and so unrealistic. It just looked terrible. <laughs> yeah, the blue for night was awful. But um, I will say, like something like Tangerine, with the way I, I really like the way that thing that film uses the iPhone because the content of that film is kind of about these people who are on the outskirts and uh, living this very edgy lifestyle. And it kind of felt like with the energy of the movie, like these characters were fast paced and fast mouthed and full of anger and piss and vinegar and kind of like running the streets, like on the hunt, looking for her, her man. And for me, when I see iPhone footage, it's you're, you're so used to seeing it kind of on your Facebook feed uh, or, from you know youtube that you've kind of like adapted to it a little bit you're used to seeing it but you're used to seeing it in a you know more handheld you know just someone filming something really quickly with their camera so for something like tangerine where the camera was you know bumpy and handheld and kind of flying around and the colors were like really oversaturated uh for me it really added a a kind of edge to tangerine and it kind of made it stand out visually in a way that a film like that might have not otherwise um, and for something like this, it's being used uh, far more in, in a more traditional way in terms of composition and in terms of, uh, you know, putting it on a tripod or a steady cam and being much more kind of uh, yeah, technic- technically uh, perfect with it, whereas Tangerine's a bit more wild and crazy. Um, this one, like you said, completely flat. There's no depth of field whatsoever to it, which some people might like. I personally don't. But I think it kind of, and he also, the aspect ratio is also, he's using the old boxed ratio um, yeah. to give it that like cramped look. And I think he's doing that. It's like, I think I, I hear filmmakers say stuff like, oh, it adds to the, the tension. It makes it feel more constrained. And I, I very rarely feel that um, unless it's being used in a very specific way. Um, but I watch the film and certain scenes, like there's a scene where she takes too many, or he gets the wrong pill and you see like her, the back of her head superimposed against the front of her face and she's kind of like going crazy. I thought stuff like yeah. that looked great. I thought that stuff looked really cool. 
And I think it does, and maybe only because it is a different film. But didn't that, didn't that stuff look cool in spite of it being shot on an iPhone? Like, I don't see how... Well, maybe that would have looked cool on film the same way, too. Yeah, but it, it, or probably better. I mean, yeah, Tangerine, was... Tangerine was shot on an iPhone. It was born out of necessity for Sean Baker, right? Like, Florida True, Project yeah. shares a lot of aesthetic similarities to Tangerine, but there's a reason why he didn't shoot Florida Project on an iPhone. Absolutely. And this just, this just feels like Soderbergh fucking around. And then he also, Soderbergh, talks about how he thinks, like, these cameras are the future of filmmaking, and I just want to scream, not only because, like, I get someone like Baker who shot Tangerine on an iPhone because it's what they could afford, right? I get that, and he used it in such a creative way because he's a great filmmaker. But they're also, I mean, it's not like filmmaking the way it was back in the 70s where you needed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars just to shoot something, you know? Like, yeah. you can get a cheaper camera that's still better than an iPhone. I mean, I know the the iPhone X, the the picture quality and the soft focus has improved a lot and it's it's always going to be making strides but i don't know if a master like soderbergh can't make it look as good as you know a movie shot on a canon 5d then i don't think we're there yet well i think part of that like francis ha was shot on a 5d you know like you can make francis ha is beautiful yeah yeah and you know so like uh Something like this, I, I, I'm watching it, and I, I have to assume that he finds that, like, it throws you off balance in some visual way, like a subconscious way for most audience members, and maybe they don't aren't aware of why it's making them uncomfortable. Um, but it's making you uncomfortable because it's not pretty. And, um, you know, it's kind of like it's not he's not shooting normally. So, like, the, for me, there's two different ways to use a wide-angle lens, or there's more than two, but the two primary like styles of a wide-angle lens is you either use it for comedy, like a, a silly kind of like almost raising Arizona, like everything's in focus and you're flying around and it's very in your face, or you're using it in like a cold, distant way, like Kubrick used it. Kubrick kind of would use wides, but um, kind of in a more like objective, third-party way where you're just kind of like observing and it, it was kind of cold and distant. Um, this feels like everything's in focus. Everything in the background is just as in focus as Claire Foy's face. And it just causes this flatness and this, um, just real, I don't know, like you said, uh, it's ugly. And, you know, it's, it's ugly. Not... Like there are shots where, you know, the shot of with the camera basically positioned on the doctor's desk looking up at Claire Foy in a super wide lens where you basically, you know, the, the width of the desk takes up the entire screen. Yeah. And it's just, it's kind of hideous. It's just not, it's like, it's distracting in a bad way. You know, it's not jarring or making me uncomfortable. It's just making me go, Ugh, that's kind of gross. I wish, I wish he didn't shoot it like that. I well, mean, to me, yeah, I think, I think, I think Soderbergh may be trolling a little bit with his comments. I think he just wanted to try it out, see what he could do. And was just having fun, which, you know, good for him. But I don't think this is something that should be adopted by filmmakers who can afford better equipment. Yeah. Well, I know for him, I, I, th I wonder how much of it is as much about the image quality as it is about the, the physical camera itself. Cause I've read interviews or heard interviews with Soderbergh where he, I think it was around the side effects era where he was talking about just how excited he was about how small cameras are getting. Like he was talking yeah. about like, he was like, man, if I want to get a shot of a foot pushing on a gas pedal, I have to like take an entire car apart because 
you know, of the size of the cameras and getting them under there. With these, I can just stick it right under their in their foot, you know. And I understand how that can be appealing, and there is certain trade-offs like that. But I do think the image quality is so it's not it's almost not worth the trade-off, you know. And again, you can do that with a Canon. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, the iPhone's interesting. I, I don't think he's going to, like you said, I don't think he's going to make every film from now on, you know, on no, an iPhone. No, definitely not. But, if his, you know, if I his get... ultimate goal with this was to show everybody who watches this movie, you can go and make something like this because everyone has a smartphone at this point, you know, pretty much. Yeah. I think that's a good message. I think that's great. But let's not let this take over movie theaters, please. I'm begging you. And I can yeah, talk but, about another horror movie that I will bring up in our next segment that is so formalist and beautiful that it, it was a breath of fresh air. I saw it a few days later after watching Unsane, and it was just it was such a thrill to watch on the big screen. Well, all right, so we talked last week about the, our favorite movies of last year. We both gave our top 20s, and right now we're at the very tail end of March, and we're coming into you know the end of the first quarter of the year. And you've already seen 20 films. I have not seen yeah. quite as many of you. <laughs> I have not seen as many of you as you this year, uh, new release-wise, because, um, you know, like I said, just busy. I've still seen a good amount, but uh, I wanted to talk about the year so far now and see where we're at and see what your favorites have been. Uh, I've, you know, I can concur with a number of them because I have seen a good, good number of them. But let's just uh, talk about where we're at for the year or where you stand for the year so far. Phil, if you'd indulge me. Since we did our top 20s last year, I intentionally watched a Netflix film last night to get to 20, 2018 films. I would yeah. like to read you my top 20 of 2018 so far. I want to hear it. Number 20. This will likely be my least favorite movie of the year. You may, Your hatred makes me want to see it so much more. I give it an F plus because it has yeah. one good segment. The 1517 to Paris, Clint Eastwood's terror train movie it is so atrocious i feel bad i feel like the reviews should have been if people were honest with themselves i think the reviews would, would have been much worse if it wasn't the real americans who heroically saved the day on that train playing themselves in the movie i think people were maybe a little hesitant to knock this movie as much as they should because it is a garbage piece of shit movie <laughs> it is garbage it is so it is it is laughably amateur, honestly. I will say the train section at the very end of the movie, they basically replay the thwarted attack in what felt like real time. It's probably like an eight or ten minute sequence. And it's pretty thrilling. It's very engaging. It's uh it's done without music or anything like that. It's it's shown very matter of factly. I really did admire that sequence. That's why it has a plus at the end of the F that I give that film. The rest of it is hot, is hot is a hot turd. It's Eastwood's worst film by far. I mean, the plane crash is the best part of Sully. You know, like Sully. The, Sully is also not a good movie in my opinion, but not nothing no. like this. Sully is at least competently made. 
Yeah, yeah. Soli's own. Uh, I mean, I, Clint Eastwood is just in such a strange part of his career in terms of the scripts he's choosing to make. He's just on this like real life history, like marine thing. I don't know what he's doing. It's garbage, man. It's uh, it's just so bad. Uh, n- number nineteen. Um, I love the tradition of getting a Liam Neeson movie at the beginning of every year. I just find it oddly comforting. The Commuter is my number 19. Pretty much, except for the 15 to 17 to Paris, which I actively really don't like. Uh, Phil knows, people who listen to this will get the sense pretty quickly. I am not one of those guys who criticizes movies, like finds things to nitpick. I like the vast majority of movies that I watch because I love movies so much. It's just the thing I love to do. I find the good in almost everything that I see. So pretty much 19 to 1, I could say positive things about all of them, even though some of them are objectively bad films. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Uh, so, yeah, The Commuter, number 19, it's fine. It's uh, you know kind of standard. Number 18, yeah. 17, 16, and 15 are all horror films. And I'd say 18 through 16... I feel kind of similarly for different reasons, and 15 was my favorite, which is kind of surprising. So 18, I had the newest Insidious film, uh, which Lin Shay is great. I love Lin Shay, so I was down with it. Um, number 17 was The Housemaid, um, which is actually not that great, but the ending is so strong. It's a, it's a weird movie where I don't think it's very interesting, and then the ending is such like a... It's just so well executed that I... It made me admire it more. Um, is it 16, the same? Sorry, is it the same? Creep? No, it's a different story. No, it's not the same story as the uh, 1960s or 2010. The housemaid. It's a totally different thing. Oh yeah, I keep. Uh, I think that. I think it was an. I think it was an IFC midnight release, which um, they're kind of hit and miss, but hit and miss. But they do put out a lot of horror movies, which I appreciate. Just the sheer quantity of movies that they're at least able to get out in like one or two indie theaters. You know. Um, Number 16, we have talked about, and I know you've seen it, Mom and Dad. Yeah, I, I didn't like that one at all. Is, yeah, it's kind of a disappointment for me. I was expecting a lot more. Um, it's from Taylor, I believe, of Neville Dean Taylor, the crank filmmakers. And it has batshit Nicolas Cage in it, which Nicolas Cage is great. I want everybody to know if you're one of those Nicolas Cage cultists like I am, do watch the movie. It is worth watching once to see his performance. I think it's genuinely hilarious. He is just off the rails doing his own thing. But the movie is kind of boring, which this movie should not have been boring. It should have been super fun and entertaining, and it really wasn't. Yeah, it's like you said, it's a boring movie. It's a great concept for a movie, and uh, the concept was what sold me. And there are sequences that I feel like if I were to say them out loud, like what happens during them, people would kind of go like, ooh, you know, that sounds intense. And then I would be like, yeah, "Yeah, but imagine it sucks, you know, like, and and a lot of that for me comes from Taylor's direction. I just, I, I do not like the crank movies. They're not my thing. Um, I, I don't like that shaky, extreme handheld. Um, we're just going to cut every third second, um, you know, and just, you know, make you have to really just like experience the, the, the high pitch scream level that we're screaming at you. Uh, with this footage as opposed to like trying to scare you or unnerve you or slowly like you know lean or make you lean into something or get nervous like there's no like suspense or anything like that it's just like 
suddenly there's a guitar that just starts fucking, you know, wailing on the soundtrack, and then the camera starts shaking, and people start screaming, and you're like, oh, well, that's not scary. Um, yeah, see, so, I, I like the Crank movies, and I my problem with the direction was that I didn't think there was enough of it. They didn't go... They didn't dig deep enough into the the farcical nature of what the movie should have been, in my opinion. Yeah, like they tried to have it both ways as a serious character film about this family and like a batshit parents are trying to murder their kids movie, you know? Yeah, and it just yeah, it was like you said, boring. And a movie that's about that's about parents trying to murder their children should never be boring. Yeah, um, but. Again, watch it for Nicolas Cage. Number 15. This was actually kind of a pleasant surprise because it got trashed. But it was the Helen Mirren horror movie, Winchester. It's not <laughs> uh, yeah. great. It's it's pretty by the numbers. Um, it has like an ending you see coming from a mile away. But it's well made. It looks good. It has a really cool location. Helen Mirren is creepy. I don't know. I like those kind of period piece Victorian-esque mansion haunted house movies. I'm kind of a sucker for those, so... I probably liked it more than a lot of people, but I would say that's um, the ones that I just mentioned are kind of all looped together. I think this one was a a slight cut above. Um, And I actually, looking at my list now, I want to put it ahead of number 14, which is insane. I kind of want to flip those. Sure, Um, do it. So, yeah, doing that. 15 unsane, 14 Winchester. Yeah, fuck yeah, Winchester. Number 13, the um, Nick Park, Wallace and Gromit fame, his animated film Early Man which is nowhere near on the level of Wallace and Gromit or Chicken Run, but it's a, it's a solid movie. It's fun. I love the, their animation style is so good. I could never hate any of their movies. Uh, it's yeah, not it, as it, unique and funny as the others, but it, it, was, it was a good enough time. Yeah, I'll probably catch that one on video. It looked uh, like Box Trolls quality to me, you know, like good but not great. Yeah, I probably like Box Trolls a little more, but that's maybe just my genre taste coming through so this one this is (laughs) this kind of explains me in a nutshell i think all right people number number 12 and number 11 number 11 is pacific rim uprising and number 12 is the death of stalin (laughs) i was just gonna say that stalin just opened here like today so i'm gonna go see that this weekend Yeah, kind of like unanimous praise. Everybody loves it. Here's my issue. Okay, like I said earlier in the podcast, I will judge The Death of Stalin much stricter than I will Pacific Rim Uprising. There are two different movies going for two very different things. The Death of Stalin is funny. It is, it's good. Steve Buscemi is fantastic in the movie. I have a problem with Armando Iannucci. I think he's very clever and he makes me laugh a lot. But he falls into a symptom, in my opinion. He did it with In the Loop, with Veep, and now with this. Every character starts to sound the same. They all start to insult each other in the same way. They just do clever quip after clever quip. It's similar to what Judd Apatow has kind of become for me, where everyone is just trying to put their get their licks in, you know? Um, yeah. To the point where like they lose the focus of who the characters are supposed to be. Jeffrey Tambor is a real highlight. I feel weird saying that now with everything that's going on with him, but whatever. He's in the movie, and he's good because he is by far the most different of all the characters. He's the less, the least acerbic. He's kind of more of a dimwit, and he's very funny. I mean, he's such a great comedic actor. But yeah, I, I don't know, man. Like, I, I want to like Inuchi a lot more than I do. I want to like him as much as other people who 
are constantly saying how they like roll out of their chairs laughing and i just don't see it like there's some actually great physical comedy bits in this movie that are kind of python-esque but yeah a lot of the dialogue is just people saying really clever insults at each other and that just grows old for me after a while yeah i i'll i can agree that i have not, i have not seen veep so i i don't really want to um speak That's too much of that to but... me. that seems like such a phil show it is such a Phil show, and yeah. uh, I, I plan on getting to it at some point. It's it's one of those shows that, since I didn't see the first few seasons, by the time I like decided, oh, that's I probably should be watching that. It was already on like season three or four, and I was like, ah, no, I got to catch up with it, and I just never did. So uh, at one point, I will sit down with it because it does seem right up my alley. But I yeah, will I say mean, that each I, season is like five hours long, so you could burn through it in a couple months. Oh, cool. Um, I I, I was just gonna say that I always felt a little um, out of it because I never liked In the Loop as much as many people did. Um, and I'm a big political, like, I'm a very big political nerd, so, like, that, this stuff appeals to me. But, you know, it, like you said, I don't, I don't remember if it was the insults or whatever, but um, there just wasn't enough there and for me to, like, latch onto. So, I mean, I hope I, 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 hope I enjoy Death of Stalin. I'll, I'll tell you about it next week. Yeah, it's like just everyone saying some version of like, you're like a pheasant's bloody tanked or whatever. It's just, it gets old. <laughs> um, number 10. So this movie I'm really struggling with. Foxtrot. Um, yeah, I, I didn't get to see it yet. So it's cut up into three distinct acts. And the first act I kind of hated. I don't know. I talked to a buddy of mine who really loved this movie. And maybe we have the Arclight Theater out here in Hollywood. And it can be very loud. And the first act of this was so loud and obnoxious in a way where it's um, it's a very quiet film for the most part. And then the sound that would come in was just so grating and drawing that I had to put my headphones on <laughs> for a while. Like, not with any music playing, just to dull the sound a little bit. And the mix was just really driving me up a wall. And I just thought it was way too... <sighs> It, it just felt like way too proud of itself and obvious, the the aesthetic of the movie in the first act. But then the last hour, I thought was great. So it, I really turned on the movie in a good way and found it um, very affecting. But that, that first half hour really bothered me. So I don't know. It's, it's one I probably want to revisit at the end of the year. I'm not totally sure where I stand on it. But cool. I do know where I stand on number nine, which I know you saw as well. Game Night. I was I was a... I enjoyed that movie. I saw it on my birthday a couple or last week. It's a fun. Uh, it's a fun. I know you went with your fiance, right? Yeah, I I told her because we had watched There Will Be Blood the night before, um, and you know, so like the next day I woke up and I was like, okay, there's like a fantastic woman, and there's like you know some other sad foreign movie I wanted to see, and I, I and I I just kind of looked at her and I got like I was like, oh, I shouldn't do this to her, you know, like she'll like she'll go see whatever I ask her to go see with me, but I kind of felt like. Ah, you know, I'm not really in the mood to think right now. It's my birthday. Like, let's just go watch something forgettable and silly. And that's pretty much what Game Night is. It's a forgettable yeah. light comedy um, that, uh, you know, it, it isn't doing anything brand new. It, I kind of wish it had done I think it could have been better, like, if it had done a few other things. But it definitely had some laughs in there, and I really like the cast, and it was an easy watch. Yeah, it does what it does well, and I am not joking when I say this. Come the fall... I am personally going to campaign for Jesse Plemons to get a supporting actor nomination. He is great. He is the he's the funniest part of the movie. Yeah, yeah, and that's weird. Like Jesse Plemons, Jake, my, my good friend Jake, is always called Jesse Plemons the ugly Matt Damon. Um, 
and <laughs> I could see that. Yeah, and uh, he he called him that. I think when I sh- I was showing him Friday Night Lights episodes, I think this was back in New York that he was calling Jesse Plemons ugly Matt Damon. So I still think of that every time I see Jesse Plemons, and he's one of those like actors. Uh, it's kind of like Paul Dano. I don't know, or uh, who's the other one? Landry Taylor Jones is he the new one? Um, Caleb Landry these, like, Jones from Ca- uh, Caleb, Get Out. Yeah, yeah, and like especially American Made. If you remember him in there, these like. There's like these supporting actors who show up in movies that I kind of like grimace at a little bit, not because I don't like them, but I'm kind of just like, God, you again? Like you're in every every fucking movie I've been watching lately. And do you think you just hate redheads? Is this an anti-redhead thing? Maybe, maybe I do. Um, well, Philip Seymour Hoffman's like my favorite actor of all time, basically, and he he was good. Yeah, but he's also not. He's beyond a character actor, or he became you know, his own, he, he could carry a movie, which I genuinely believe Paul Dano's great. Caleb Landry Jones is great. I think Jesse Plemons is a stud of an actor. He really like, he's so good in game night, legitimately great in game night. It's such a committed, creepy performance. He's really good in Fargo. He's awesome in that episode of black mirror, that star Trek, um, satire, the USS Callister episode in the new season that just came out. I think he's yeah. just fantastic, man. Like he, I wanted, I want a spinoff of his character. Like he was so good in that movie. Um, did, anyway, number eight. So, sorry, did you want to say something else about it? No, no, just you know, just did you mention Breaking Bad on that list? No, yeah, of course, Breaking Bad. Yeah, he's yeah. he's really good in that, and I love him mentioning Philip Seymour Hoffman and The Master. He's great in The Master. That's right. Shit, man, I gotta watch The Master again. It's been a couple years. Yeah, you do. Number eight. Uh, this this is the formalist horror movie that I really love. The Strangers 2, Pray at Night. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Whatever, man. You can laugh, but you'll watch it. Oh, I thought you were... You'll... No, I'm being dead serious. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were, je- I thought you were referring to a different... I thought you were going to talk about a other formal horror film that you just watched. So I thought you were joking when you said The Strangers 2. No. Um, the Strangers 2, it would honestly be much higher if... The story was better. You know, it's very stock slasher film characters and everything. Yeah. But it is such a cool movie to watch, especially if you're a slasher horror movie fan. It's really, really well directed. It is full of, like, really slow, long zooms. It's super patient. It has, you know, people hidden in the depths of frames with no jump scare music to accommodate it, so every audience member sees them at their own pace. And you would hear, like different freakouts in the theater as people were kind of realizing what was on the frame it makes every every section of the shot very interesting like it's frame the composition is great the camera movement is spectacular and there is a sequence i'll just call it the pool sequence towards the end of the movie with total eclipse of the heart playing and the colors of this like tropically designed trailer park pool it is one of the best sequences in a horror movie i've seen in years it is so 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 good if the movie itself were more creative, if the script was better, this would be like top three of the year for me. No joke. Really? Um, unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately, it's just like a really, really well-made horror movie stuck as you know just a formulaic horror script. But it is really interesting, man. Like it's well, that's uh, how... it's a movie to watch when you go off to make your own movie if you want to make a movie in that vein. You know? Yeah, I mean, my thing. Like the strangers, I I remember. Enjoy, I've only seen the first one once, and that was when it came out. So it's been a while. 
But I'm those types of horror movies, um, Halloween is probably the the granddaddy of all of these, but I call them peekaboo movies. They're just like movies where the characters, like the strangers themselves, I feel like they're just staring across rooms for the entire movie. You know, like yeah, you're just yeah. you're just kind of playing peekaboo. And I like uh, formally, I find it. Um, I, I I would rather watch that than something like Mom and Dad. But um, it can also sometimes I'm like, why aren't you just go kill them? Go stop staring at them. Go kill them. And yes, there, and that's why this movie drops places because there are many moments like that where it's. You know, it's me shouting at the screen saying, what the fuck are you doing? Go kill him or yeah. run. Like, why? You know, it's a lot of that. But yeah, it's I mean, honestly, man, if uh, if you want some inspiration before you go off and make your first film to to see how to be really creative in a cheap way, watch Strangers too. I think you can get something out of it. Cool. Well, I mean, someone uh, horror is an interesting genre in, in that like someone like James Wan I think is an incredibly, incredibly talented director um, who I think, I, I don't think the scripts, I think you and I will differ on this. I, I, I think the scripts are fine, especially for something like The Conjuring or Insidious or Death Sentence. Like they range in quality, but I think his ability to stage a, a horror sequence or an action set piece are unparalleled right now in the horror genre. And I know he didn't do Strangers or The Strangers 2, but. I think horror lends itself to that type of thing where you can have these great individual sequences, but not necessarily have a great movie around it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I know we're running a little long, so I'll try to hurry through the rest. Number seven, shout out to my buddy Andrew working for The Orchard, the movie Flower. I was very pleasantly surprised by that movie. Um, The dialogue is super believable among teenagers. Zoe Deutsch, I think is how you pronounce her name is yeah. really a star-turning performance. She's fantastic. Um, speaking of young girls acting great, number six is Thoroughbreds, which I think you saw as well, right? I did, yeah. Yeah, a big fan of that one. Um, number five is the movie I watched last night, The Ritual, on Netflix, which is... Um, That's what I thought you were talking about. I mean, honestly, Strangers is better directed, but The Ritual is a better movie. Oh, controversial opinion, I would assume, but I have not watched The Ritual yet, so I can't yeah, disagree. It, you know, it's weird. I um, I was kind of glad. Um, I went to go see The Strangers 2 with a buddy, and he had, he was talking about The Ritual, and he was kind of like, meh on it, which is surprising, because a lot of people in the horror circle, you know, podcasting critical circle, whose opinion I really value, were talking about The Ritual like it was a masterpiece, and I wouldn't go there. But it is really interesting. It's really well done. It's very simple. It's kind of like my soft spot type of horror movie. A uh, couple characters stranded in a situation. They kind of get picked off one by one. But it's much more... The themes are much more adult and interesting than that. Uh, it's worth checking out. And you can watch it for free on Netflix, at least in the U.S. So people should do it. Number four, um, Black Panther. Obviously. It's got to be up there. Yeah. Yeah. I think we talked about it a little bit last week as well. Yeah, yeah, we talked about it a little bit last week. Just, you know, it is the biggest movie of the year, without a doubt. Like, I'm looking at total grosses for the year so far, just domestically. We have, domestically, Peter Rabbit is at number two with $108 million, and Fifty Shades Freed has $100 million. And then at number one, at $637 million is Black Panther. So not even, it's made six times more domestically than the next one down. So without a doubt, the biggest movie of the year. And 
you know, we could talk at length and it, about it. It would have been the biggest movie of 2017. It's past Last Jedi and Beauty and the Beast already. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I asked you this question via text the other day, but do you, do you think Black Panther is going to end up making more than Infinity War? I think yes. Um, honestly, it depends. I think there are so many non-Marvel fans um, who went out to see Black Panther who don't see Marvel movies in general. And I think a lot of Infinity War is going to depend on will that crowd who specifically responded to Black Panther go out to Infinity War hoping to see more of T'Challa? Well, I mean, one thing I think the trailers seem to indicate is that there's going to be a lot of Black Panther. Like, it looks like... Uh, ama- honestly, I mean- even if even if there isn't, they would be fools not to show as much of them as possible in the trailer right now. Yeah, I mean, I think Marvel's kind of hoping that, like you said, like people hopefully might view this as Black Panther 2 in some strange way. You know, like, oh, God, we, we can go get, you know, further into the action, and we also get the Avengers as well. But it looks like the whole cast yeah. of... I mean, it certainly seems like they're in Wakanda in the trailers for... Infinity War. So it looks like we're going to get a lot of Black Panther. Yeah, I, I think it's a lot of Thor as well, which um, Thor Ragnarok, I think, overperformed for them, which is good. I mean, especially compared to the other two Thor movies. But Black Panther has already outgrossed Civil War, Age of Ultron, and the original Avengers, which is the only other 600 million Marvel movie. So yeah. it's the king right now. So you're basically saying, I mean, I know Infinity War is what all this has been building to, I guess. But you're basically banking on, do you think Infinity War will be the highest grossing Marvel film ever? And I don't know. It's Black Panther's about to pass Titanic domestically. It'll probably pass Titanic in a week or two. Uh, I mean, not that, adjusted. No, but still, it's gross. And that includes Titanic's re-release, which added like another $100 million or whatever. Did it? Did, I mean, it, did it regardless, do that well on re-release? Yeah, it's, uh, I think Titanic was, or maybe not 100 maybe like 70 because I think it was right at 600, and now it's at like 670 or something like that. I don't know the exact numbers, but right, right I mean, now it's the on... fifth, fifth highest movie of all time unadjusted for inflation, Black Panther is. That's insane. Right now, Titanic is lifetime is 659 domestic, but that was back in 97. So the uh, no that inc- right that includes the re-release. Yeah, yeah, and Black Panther right now is at 637, so it's only like 20 million behind it. So. And what That's was nuts. I know I know Avengers is up on the list too. Where is that? Oh, I was just looking at Titanic. Sorry. Um, oh, okay. Here. Anyway, uh, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna Mark- guess no that it well I would say no domestically maybe internationally it does better than Black Panther that wouldn't shock me. But I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna say no I'm gonna say Black Panther outgrosses it. Yeah, I, I agree with what you just said. I think internationally like worldwide gross, I could see Avengers doing better, but I think domestically the Black Panther will still remain the top movie of the year. So my number three is the one I'm going to get the most shit for probably Red Sparrow. I didn't see it, so I can't give you shit, but I know, I, yeah. I know, but it, it didn't get good reviews. I, it's two hours and 20 minutes long. That was know, what man. stopped me. I was yeah, going to go I'm, one night and then I saw that it was two and a half hours. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I, if I want that right now. Yeah, and I get that made me not go see it sooner than I would because I'm a Jennifer Lawrence fan and I love spy films. Um, probably besides horror, spy movies are like my they're my jam. Um, but this it really surprised me. It's like super 
classy spy movie. It really felt like a 90s throwback and that I'm just a sucker. I mean, this is obviously a personal list. This is one I think is objectively the best films of the year. These are my favorites. Maybe maybe Red Sparrow, the honeymoon phase, will fall off and it'll go down in the list a little bit more. Like maybe Black Panther will move ahead of it again. It probably should. It's a, it's a better movie, I think. But I don't know. I, I love Red Sparrow. And then um, number one and number two, I go back and forth on rating them. They're so brilliant in such different ways, but they're two movies that will be in my top ten, unless this is an incredible, like, groundbreaking year for movies. But right now I have number two is Paddington 2 and number one is Annihilation, but I, I can't decide. <laughs> well, they are both, I agree, both great, but for very different reasons. Yeah, I think they're both legit masterpieces. I really do. Well... All right, so I've seen both of those. I can definitely talk about those. Um, Annihilation, um, you know, we were both big fans of Ex Machina, and I think to varying degrees we've been a fan of... I I know you love 28 Days Later. That's a big one for you. Um, Yes. But, you know, this one for me is just... It's actually, in some ways... the I think it is probably my favorite thing that Alex Garland's done so far because I feel like a lot of his movies kind of have great beginnings and great ideas, but often lead towards a third act or final 10 minutes that often I don't like. I think that's a pretty frequent thing that happens in a lot of his movies, but this one is kind of one that I actually, the final 10 minutes or 15, 20 minutes are just the thing that like have, have not left my mind ever since I saw some of the images and the ideas that it's playing with. And it's obviously got so much that it owes to stalker and other sci-fi films, but it's kind of doing its own thing, and its ideas about DNA mutation and change and our ever-changing natures, and um, it, it's it, yeah, it's it's lived in my brain ever since seeing it. It's definitely gonna end. Up, I think it's gonna stay pretty high on my list because it works so well as a idea-driven science fiction horror monster movie, and you just it's so original, and it's a shame that more people didn't get to see it on the big screen. Yeah, the. The ending, I think, is rightfully compared to things like 2001 in terms of its kind of abstract mindfuck ending, or even The Fountain, the Ar- my favorite Aronofsky movie. I saw I saw Annihilation a second time in theaters. Initially, I had some pacing and story issues, um, especially in the first hour plus. Honestly, I have not stopped reading think pieces about the movie, readings into it, uh, I love the idea that it's about um, people's unwillingness to change and accept change and fight the inevitable or fight whatever is new. There's a really good article um, that talks about annihilation in terms of coping with depression that I think is very good. It's it's the most fun I've had reading about a movie since Get Out, for sure. And the fact that there are so many interpretations and readings into the story that I think are truly valid... And I see, even if I don't always personally agree with them, it just shows that it's just a movie that's going to age well. It's going to be continuously rewarding. I, I legit want to go a third time before I leave theaters because who knows? I think it'll eventually be a midnight movie like Get Out will be, you know, in, in theaters and cities around the world. But for now, who knows when you'll get to see that experience in theaters again. And it is such a great big screen film. It's legit brilliant. And Paddington is just... It's pure happiness in a movie. It's just so, it's so good. Both of those Paddington movies are just everything that's good about movies and why you would fall in love with 
storytelling and movie making in general. Yeah, Paddington too. Um, same. It's a different thing. I was talking about horror set pieces. Um, Paddington too kind of excels at these kind of comedic slapstick, um, Chaplin esque, you know, sequences. Totally. Where the silly bear just kind of gets in these little adventures, and it's never the it's always got such a good heart and good spirit and you're kind of watching it and you just have a smile on your face. Cause you kind of just feel that everybody involved in this film is having a great time being there. And you kind of just like, even if you don't have, I have a, a daughter, but she's older now. Like it almost makes me wish that she was just like three years old and that we could like, I could just show her Paddington. Cause you feel like you want every child to just watch these movies and love them and grow up on them because they feel so, um, so warm inside they just they make you feel good they make you smile um there's i it's hard to describe kind of what about them excels them beyond the normal children's fair but it, there's it's there's a, a a wry kind of um smart edge to them like they they're, they're not like dark but there is some kind of you know subtext to them uh, to the humor like the first one is kind of a large parable about immigration in, yes. in Europe and the whole things, you know, dealing with the immigration crisis. And there are those weird, you know, things going on below the surface. But that said, the movies themselves are very warm. And Paddington himself is just such a likable bear. You kind of just it makes you feel like a three year old reading a children's book again. And you're just happy to be there. It, they're, they're great movies. Great movies. Yeah, it's I mean, the movies kind of represent to me everything that is idealistic and good about human nature like the the characters represent all that is good in humanity to me and it's funny talking about that about a talking bear movie but it's really true i mean they paddington as a character he just completely lacks judgment and he is always trying to remain optimistic, but he allows himself to be sad. Um, it It is get, sending a message that you need to find the good in people, that you shouldn't judge people based on superficial things like skin color or where you came from, things that people have no control over, um, that everyone is capable of good and doing good things, and that community matters and loving each other matters. And beyond that, as just a film nerd, a 32-year-old who saw Paddington 2 by himself in a theater, it is so mesmerizing to watch. Like, it's beautifully framed. It's beautifully orchestrated. The set pieces are truly, like, silent film brilliance. Um, there's just so much to love. Uh, yeah, the, those movies kind of blow me away by how much I admire them. Well, I also just want you to know, as a man with a child, I also saw Paddington 2 by myself. So we're, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, I, yeah I couldn't, I couldn't talk my 14 year old into it, but you know, she's she, too you know, old I, for it, but we're not, she's too cool for Paddington 2, but I am not at all. And I loved it. I came home and I was like, that was great. You're the loser who didn't fucking come. So we have a buddy, Phil and I, a guy named Ian who went to film school with us, who's uh, our age. He has a two-year-old son, and uh, two weeks ago, maybe, we were discussing our favorites of the year, mainly just talking about Annihilation. And I told him, yeah, you know, I'm torn between that and Paddington 2. And he responded via text, is that a joke? You're such a weird person that I legit don't know if you're trolling me when you say that. 
And I just roasted him and was immediately like, dude, this is not a joke. You need to get on the Paddington train. Take your son. And about a week later, he texted me and was like, yeah, you're 100% right about Paddington. Those movies are incredible. So the word is getting out, hopefully. It's a shame that it did so poorly theatrically in America. Um, because they I made would love... Bucks internationally. That's huge internationally. Good, because keep making those movies, man. I need them. They're like, they're antidepressants, basically. Yeah, Paddington 2 domestically in America made $40 million. Foreign box office, it made 196 Awesome. So, yeah, Paddington 3 in five years. Do it. Do it, do it, do it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my list. Uh, I will hopefully not talk about 1517 in Paris again until you see it. Awesome. Well, I mean, I was looking at my list of movies because I was like, oh, wow, he's kind of talking about like every movie that's come out this year. This works out. And I wanted to like, I was like, oh, I should mention some movies that I've seen that aren't being brought up um, that I also liked. And the truth is, I was going through my list of movies that I've watched this year, and there are a number of movies I have watched. But I did not like almost any of them. Well, you, like you mentioned the ones that I did like, like you know Paddington Two or Annihilation, uh, stuff like that. But you know I saw like Mute, Dustin or Duncan Jones's new film. Uh, I saw Golden Exits, um, Alex Ross Perry's new film. Um, you know stuff like that. I, I'm looking through and I'm just like, man, you know there was Hostels, the Scott Cooper film that came out. Um, there was just a number of films I saw that was really disappointed in from artists that I really tend to respect. Um, especially I'm a big Alex Ross Perry fan and I was really disappointed with golden exits. I, it was a very, very small release, but, um, that one just didn't work for me, but you know, annihilation, another one, like we could talk at length about that one in terms of, or not annihilation. I'm sorry. Mute, um, is another sci-fi film that is full of ideas and interesting, um, concepts, but just, didn't work at all as a movie for me. And the script, it was one of those things that I, I hear interviews with Duncan Jones. And he's like, oh, well, we wrote the script back in 2006. And, you know, we've been trying to sell it. And I'm like, well, you maybe should have been working on it for the last 10 years as opposed to trying to sell it because, you know, it wasn't very good. And for me, it's one of those times where I'm just like, man, I really wish a studio would have stepped in and maybe like been like, hey, you need to focus this a little bit or we need to like, you know, do some more things here because I feel like, I don't know. There's there's just not a lot to it, and I wish I would have liked that one a lot more. That was a big disappointment for me. So did he write that before Moon? He said he wrote it. He was trying to shop it almost immediately after Moon came out. So he wrote it around the time he was making Moon. Oh, so okay. like, gotcha. and he's been you know like when somebody tells when a when a director tells you know a reporter that he's got some dark noir you know, big budget sci-fi thriller that no one wants to make. I get really excited because I love that stuff. Like, um, you know, anything like that sounds right up my alley. So I was really excited for it for like 10 years, you know, or whatever it was. So when I finally watched it, I was like, oh, this is what you've been brewing? Like, it, it was a pretty big disappointment for me. Um, but, you know, I, we're only a quarter way through the year, and this is kind of the dead zone of the year for most people. I tend to spend this time of the year watching older movies. I've spent... A lot of my free time on Filmstruck, uh, just seeking out older movies and more classic stuff. That's usually how I tend to spend my early parts of the year, either catching up with some of the stuff I missed from last year. That's usually how I spend my Januaries is watching a lot of the previous year's movies, trying to get ready for the Oscars and stuff. And then I usually, you know, see a few things in theaters that are coming out and watch a lot of older movies or rewatch stuff. And, you know, but we're about to enter the summer. So before you know it, Infinity War is going to be here and... 
bunch of other stuff. So we're going to have plenty to talk about. Yeah, we have uh, Isle of Dogs still. We're hopefully going to talk about that next week. Ready Player yeah, One yeah. is currently in theaters. Yeah, we got some yeah, stuff. To, to, today, it came out today. So we'll, I'm yeah. going to go see that this weekend. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to probably talk about Ready Player One um, and some other things on the next episode. Um, anything else you want to talk about before we uh, head into the last little bit here? Take advice from Paddington and love each other. And love on each other, like rub up against each other in a loving way, you know? Like touchy. Everyone should touch each other. And keep a marmalade sandwich under their hat. Yeah, put it in your afro like I got. <laughs> you do have a little little afro. A hairy marmalade sandwich. Yeah, just keep it in Yeah, there. I got what people would call the Jufro, even though I'm not Jewish. You're not, yeah, you're just not Jewish. I got, actually, this is... Kind of, I, there was um, there's a theater close to where I live within walking distance, and they were doing this like really small, you know, festival, and they had set up a little red carpet, and I just happened to be walking by on my way home. I forget where I was, but I've been told that by a few people that I look kind of like Seth Rogen, and I was walking by I was walking by the red carpet, and these 13 year old girls started freaking out and like pointing at me. And I think it was just because I was walking by this roped off red carpet with sunglasses on, like kind of looked like I didn't want to be noticed, but that's just how I generally look. And I think they thought I was Seth Rogen for a minute, (laughs) like legitimately, (laughs) I think they thought Seth Rogen was showing up to this like genre, super (laughs) no name film festival. And either that or I don't know, like maybe I had like a titty out or something, but I'm pretty sure it was that like... They were reacting like I was some famous person, which I am definitely not. You should have just started laughing, like, uh, you know. Just yeah, to... I've I've tried to do his laugh. I think it would be funny with the way I look, but I, I can't really get it down. Nah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. I can't do it. <laughs> I love I love that though. I I, <laughs> I I love you just the way you are. Just... Um, thank you, buddy. You want to <laughs> say any parting words? Well, yeah. Um. I just wanted to. I wanted to end um, the, this week with a couple, um, a couple small, very quick rants, like last week's Justin Timberlake rant. So, um, mm. I just I, I had a couple quick um, thoughts slash recommendations that I wanted to throw out there. Um, number one, uh, yeah, I don't I don't think you've listened to it, so I, we can't discuss it too much. But man, is Jack White's new album weird. Um, you said something about that via text, but no, I have not listened to it. Like, all right. So to be clear, I am not actually the world's biggest Jack White fan. I, I like I like him, and and I especially like him in theory, like what he's trying to do. Um, but his voice can grate on me, and uh, you know, I'm not into everything he's done. But I do have some respect for him. And whenever he or one of his projects releases a new album, I tend to sit down and give it a spin and try it out. And this new one. He's, um, I think he's gotten to a place in his career, kind of like Soderbergh, actually. He reminds me of this. Like, certain artists get to a place in their career where they feel like they've accomplished what they probably initially set out to do. And then they're kind of like, okay, well, where do I go from here? And then they just start trying weird things. And you, as an audience member, you know, you, you kind of have to just view it in a phase that they're in. You're like, oh, well, he's just going to try this thing out for a little while. Like, Soderbergh right now is in his iPhone digital phase you know, or whatever you want to call it. 
And then like Jack White probably feels like he's done the garage rock thing or the the old school thing enough. So now he's trying out like weird synthy, like organ heavy, like electronic stuff. And it's just I guess, you know, in theory that it sounds interesting, like that Jack White would go and try and make like his own version of Jesus or something like that. But it's just it does does not work at all. It's like it reminds me of when the Rolling Stones were making albums in the eighties and you would just listen to them and you're like, What is this shit? Um not all of their eighties work, but a lot of their eighties work uh is really bad. But I guess that's I, I don't know. I was looking at it as part of like when you're looking at an artist, you kind of do have to look at their career as a whole and just like hope that, oh well that was an interesting time period that they were trying stuff. But on an individual basis, it is uh very strange. And uh, maybe I'll throw in right here a, a clip of this song. It's literally a four-minute song all about, like, why do we treat dogs the way we treat dogs? You know, like, why why do we have to walk a dog? Is it because we have to, like, hold dominion over dogs? And, like, these are, like, the lyrics. And I was just like, Jack, what the fuck are you singing about dogs for over this weird organ? It just sounds like he's making fun of me. And yeah, you. And, why do you say that he's making fun of you? That's what I'm, that's what I was so amused by in your text to me. Like, like I feel like he's not me personally, but any listener, you know. Like, I feel like he's just like I've been. Any any album I make is gonna get four stars from Rolling Stones, so I'm just gonna sing about dogs on a, with an organ, and you know, like I'm gonna really test this out. You know, like, let's see if people will go with this. Well, that also sounds like a 12-year-old's thought. Like, why do we treat dogs the way we do? Because people love dogs and dogs need to be walked. Simple. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just, it was one of those songs that I was just like, or one of those albums. I was just kind of listening to it the whole time. Just like, I I don't know what's going on with Jack right now. So add Jack White to uh, that list with Justin Timberlake of artists I, you know, just, I'm not sure where they're at right now in in their careers. That's been my week. What? Wait, what's your uh, favorite album of the year so far i don't have one there hasn't there hasn't been like uh any new release that's really like grabbed me like if i'm being honest the, the release i've listened to the most is johnny greenwood's new score for uh you were never really here um I, it's weird to me that you would listen to that before seeing the movie but that i don't know we're different well there. i mean like it, it's weird i didn't listen to his phantom thread score before seeing phantom thread i think it's maybe I was I didn't know that he was doing the score for that movie, so it started as me just kind of like clicking it, being like, "Oh, I'm just gonna sample this," and then I just really loved several tracks off of it, and so, and it's it's a very strange album, but I'm really, uh, I'm into like classical or mood music, I should say, more than I've been into like pop or anything lately. So that's kind of where my head's at. Yeah, so, I've been listening to the Phantom Thread score pretty much on a loop yeah um and the other thing I, I i just finished this before we started um so i wanted to mention it but i really really loved um the director and the jedi have you heard of this i know about it yeah i haven't watched it the uh two hour ryan johnson star wars thing yeah yeah well it's, it's like an hour and a half um, but it is feature length and uh, it man it's it kind of stays with him and his producer um the through the entire process through pre-production uh you go through you follow him around through the costumes, through uh, talking to the actors, through, um, you know, set design, through scheduling meetings. Like you really, you know, it follows him pretty in depth and you get a really good look at the entire process of making this, the last Star Wars film. And, you know, I, as much as I love um, 
you know, the, the grand ideas that he's talking about, like wanting to do a Star Wars, that stuff's fine and dandy. But for me, as someone who wants to make films uh, in the future and I'm prepping a film right now, um, you know, you, I'm looking at his producer and you just like he's talking about the scheduling and it really sinks in just how hard it is to like just do the scheduling. He's like, we have this. We They're building 45 sets and you know, we need to have it for this day, and then we need to move that set. We need to rebuild it on the side of a mountain in Ireland a week later. And that needs to happen at the same week that Laura Dern is finishing up her HBO show, Big Little Lies. And if anybody gets sick, you know, that'll throw literally thousands of things out of whack if, like, Mark Hamill gets sick one day. You know, and it just it really sinks in just, like, how stressful it is balancing these monumentally huge numbers of people and moving parts and it really gives you a, a big respect for just how hard it is to put one of those things together even though they have all the money in the world and to make so. it good yeah and you know? yeah and for it to be good too is, is a whole other thing um but it it's a great documentary especially if you're in, interested in filmmaking and I, it gives a great peek and, and i'm someone who really enjoys a good behind the scenes i think most of them are crap but i would put this one very high on the list of if you're a filmmaker and want to watch a behind-the-scenes documentary, this is one of the better ones that you're going to find on a DVD special feature. Is it on the Last Jedi Blu-ray? It is, yeah. It's cool. It's, so I haven't yeah, bought that yet, a, but yeah, there's um, there's some good features on there. Um, there's some good deleted scenes and some other things, so it's definitely worth checking out. Um, so that's my even though I trashed Jack White this week, I will recommend. Uh, picking up that Last Jedi Blu-ray because Last Jedi was on my list of favorite films last year, and also it includes an amazing behind-the-scenes documentary that I think is great for film fans and Star Wars fans alike. So definitely check that out. Cool, yeah, I will. I will be watching that for sure. All right, well, uh, I think that'll wrap us up for this week. Um, we will report back next week with some more watching, some more reading, some more listening. We'll you know see what's on our minds. So, uh, Tom, I will see you next week. All right, buddy. Take care, everybody. Don't forget to rub up on each other. Yeah, no, make a marmalade sandwich while you do it. Mmm, sexy. Bye, Phil. Mmm, bye.